I'm Duncan McNichol. And I'm Dominic Norberg. And this is an episode of... Not Exactly Rocket Science. Not Exactly Rocket Science. (laughs) Uh, Which is our podcast, um, wherein we talk to researchers in fields that are not ours. Um, Our fields being physics, chemistry, computer science, engineering, really anything up at that mathsy end of the the spectrum. And uh, today we're talking to a man called Adam Zeman. Um, who is at Exeter University, but we should probably just let him introduce himself. My name is Adam Zeman, and I'm Professor of Cognitive and Behavioural Neurology at the University of Exeter Medical School. So, cognitive and neurobiology, did you say? <laughs> that's, that's terrible. <laughs> cognitive and behavioural neurology. Cognitive and behavioural neurology. I just heard what I wanted to hear there. <laughs> um, so, cognitive and behavioural neurology. Um, so, one thing that I've always... Uh, I've, I've never really got is neurology is to do with the brain. Yep. And to me, psychiatry is also to do with the brain. Yep. Um, what's the difference between them? Well, that's a really very good question. So I suppose the, 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 the glib answer would be that neurology is to do with the care of disorders of the brain, whereas psychiatry is to do with the care of disorders of the mind. But as you have already implied, that's a, an entirely false dichotomy. And it is a false dichotomy. And this is a real problem within medicine. Uh, because at present, um, people who train in neurology and psychiatry follow very different uh, training pathways. They tend to practice in different places and they interact very little. Uh, while in fact, the disorders which they're looking after have everything to do with one another. So um, there is a uh, a, a, a difficult and kind of misleading dichotomy which has grown up historically and which we need to try to overcome. Uh, and the reason we need to try to overcome it is that just about all disorders of the central nervous system have what you might call neurological aspects and also psychiatric aspects. So just to give a quick, a couple of quick examples, if you have multiple sclerosis, say, which is looked after by neurologists, mm-hmm. you're very likely to have problems with cognition and you may well have problems with mood which traditionally fall more in the realm of psychiatry and if you have say psychosis which tends to be looked after by psychiatrists there may well be detectable problems with the structure of your brain um, or indeed straightforward medical causes for the psychosis which really fall in the realm of neurology so so the two subjects are are wholly um, intermeshed but unfortunately they are currently um, handled very differently by the educational system and by the NHS. Can, can you quickly uh, elaborate where that historical divide comes from? Yeah, so no, it's just, that's a fascinating question. So there was a time when the two subjects were essentially one. So at the end, towards the end of the 19th century, people like Charcot, the French neurologist, or Alzheimer, the um, German neurologist and neuropathologist, didn't really distinguish disorders that we now think of as either neurological or psychiatric. So the distinction really got going properly in the in the last century, and I think it has it has a number of sources, but they include on the neurological side the ability to localize some neurological problems very precisely. So for example, if you well if you become weak down one side as the result of a stroke, it's possible to pinpoint the source of the problem in the brain. It's going to lie, for example, in the motor cortex on the opposite side of the brain. And neurologists became very captivated by localization. So they became interested in disorders which you could localize, and they therefore rather lost their feel for other disorders which are, in a sense, neurological, but much less easy to localize, like Mm -hmm. schizophrenia or autism. 
So that happened on the on the neurological side, and then on the psychiatric side, there was of course Freud, who actually began life as a neurologist, but became increasingly fascinated by the content of experience and by his theories about the unconscious. And he took psychiatry off in a direction in which it was very difficult for neurology to follow. Would it would it have would it have added to that that some psych I think more psychiatrists would have also I don't know ventured more into the metaphysical realm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you could say that Freud did that. The other movement within psychiatry, which took it away from neurology and, and indeed away from medicine generally, was the anti-psychiatry movement. So that's associated in the UK with with R. D. Lang. So these were psychiatrists who kind of emphasized the sense in which psychiatric disorders are social constructions and the ways in which um, psychiatry can be used as a tool of repression, as it has been in Russia and China. So there were there were a number of forces which kind of pulled neurology and psychiatry apart in the last century. I think they're coming back together again now, particularly in research, because people working in neuroscience don't they don't they don't bother with the distinction between neurological and psychiatric disorder they just they just work with the they work with the nervous system and some nervous system problems give rise to you know, what one might think of as simple neurological symptoms like weakness or sensory loss others give rise to more psychiatric symptoms like depression or psychosis but it's clear that in each case in every case one's dealing with a the problem of the nervous system. Um, so, uh, what more specifically do you uh, is, is your research in? What what do you focus on? So, I have two main strands to my research. One has to do with memory disorders occurring in epilepsy, and in particular, a form of temporal lobe epilepsy called transient epileptic amnesia, which is characterised by um, short periods of memory loss lasting 20 minutes or so, usually occurring in middle-aged people, often on waking, um, associated with autobiographical memory loss. So these folk often become unable to evoke memories from their, their personal past. They also develop leaky memories, something that's been called accelerated long-term forgetting, and uh, navigational problems. So that's something I've been working on for an embarrassingly long time, since the mid-1990s. Um, and that has some overlap through the autobiographical memory difficulty with my other strand of research, which is the one that's that caught your eye, which is on disorders of visual imagery. And that really got going in the early 2000s when I encountered a patient who'd lost the ability to visualize. And having described his case, I was then contacted by an increasing number of people who said they were just like him, but they had never been able to visualize. Um, and, and it was when we began to, when I began to meet these people that we coined the term aphantasia, to describe the the absence of visual imagery. So, um, for uh, any podcast listeners who don't know me personally, um, I can't visualise uh, myself, so I, I have aphantasia, um, which is uh, how how we uh, got in contact with with Adam. One thing that I'm really keen to not do is to completely ignore the other strand of your research, just because uh, one of them personally affects me. Epilepsy associated am- amnesia. Did, you said periods of 20 minutes or so usually on waking. Does that mean that people just lose the first 20 minutes of their day? So they have two problems during those 20 minutes. Um, And actually often the more prominent one is often difficulty in remembering what's happened recently. So kind of typical typical example would be that somebody in his 60s wakes up and maybe has difficulty in um, remembering where he's now working or can't work out why his children aren't around um, or 
sees a suitcase by the bed and doesn't remember that he's going on holiday. So there's a there's a problem in remembering what's happened recently. And then there is also often a problem in laying down a memory for the episode, but that's often less severe, actually. So one of the intriguing things about these folk is that they can often remember not being able to remember. They are actually able to form some memory during the period of amnesia. And the main problem is is, is with what's called retrograde memory, remembering what's happened recently. But there, but there's a, a combination of those two things, a combination of an anterograde amnesia and a retrograde amnesia, a combination of a difficulty in forming new memories and a difficulty in recalling what's happened over the last few days, weeks, or sometimes longer. And that, that lasts just for 20 minutes, half an hour, and then it resolves so that um, an hour later they'll be Back in the picture, they'll they'll remember their holiday and they'll be able to form memory normally. Wow, that sounds um, difficult to live with. Um, I mean, I guess any kind of amnesia is difficult to live with. Um, and so, this is a form of epilepsy. Is is this the the main symptom of the epilepsy, or is this people who have an epilepsy that I might recognise from my sort of naive understanding of the the disorder? Just just to clarify, the period of amnesia can be the seizure itself. So, if you have um, epilepsy, which is localized to the memory system in the brain, it can manifest itself purely in a period of amnesia. So about a third of people with this condition, which is called transient epileptic amnesia, just have these amnesic spells without any other man classic manifestations of epilepsy. Um, we know from brain recordings that the amnesia can also be the aftermath of a brief seizure. So in some people, during the period of amnesia, there is continuous epileptic activity. In other people, there's been a brief period of epilepsy at the start, which, which knocks out the memory system for 20 minutes or half an hour. So for a third of them, all that ever happens is the periods, brief periods of amnesia, but two thirds will at some point have something more recognizable as a seizure, but it's still not, not usually a full-blown shaking all over seizure. It's often an olfactory hallucination. So about half of our patients with this condition will smell some strong smells that other people don't smell. Um, there will occasionally be a short period of loss of contact with the environment, loss of consciousness. Um, there are occasionally automatisms, so often repetitive swallowing or lip smacking. Um, and then just occasionally, but only in a few percent, there is a, a major seizure at some point. To go back to the um, the sort of disorders of visual imagery, um, you said that the whole thing started in the early 2000s with this um, patient who had lost the ability to visualize. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's an individual patient. I don't know how much detail you can give us, but um, how did that happen? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, sure. So we've described his case. So it's in the, in the public domain. Okay. Um, he was a very uh, articulate surveyor in his mid sixties. And he had a very he had very vivid visual imagery until this change in his experience occurred and it happened just after he had a coronary angioplasty so he had a procedure to treat ischemic heart disease um, an angioplasty to to in, to, to uh, open up the coronary artery um, the narrowed coronary artery that was causing his angina and following this procedure he found that he could no longer call to mind the faces of friends and family and places that he'd visited, which he often used to do to help himself get to sleep. He found that his dreams became avisual, so he continued to dream, but he just dreamt a story, so to speak, without any imagery. And he also found that his experience of reading had changed, so he was a very avid reader, and previously when he read, um, he would enter a visual world that that was no longer conjured up for him by, by a novel. So there was a, a rather 
marked striking change in his experience. The cause for it wasn't absolutely clear. So, the, you know, our assumption was that he'd had a minor stroke, but that was never proven. We didn't see him until some time after this had happened, um, which m means that the kind of imaging that might have shown a, a small acute stroke at the time wasn't performed. The, those symptoms, I'm sure, um, are, are devastating, and I'm sure they sound devastating to most people. To, to me, I, I struggle to understand what that would be like because I, I've never visualized things, so it's not a thing I, I can lose. I think, I think devastating would be putting it too strongly. He he, it was a very clear change in his experience. And he said, as he put it, he said that he missed seeing, but, but um, he, he wasn't devastated by it. He was able to continue functioning pretty normally, um, but, he, but he missed his imagery. Um, and, and have you had other patients who have had the same thing occur since then? I have, and there are a number in the literature, but not very many. So when I when I met MX this patient I I'd never come across this symptom before so I went to to see whether it had been described and there are at that at that time there were perhaps about 50 cases in the literature um starting off in fact with a case from Charcot the, the French neurologist who I mentioned from from the 1880s mm. uh so it had been described before but it's but it's pretty rare and it it's been described in the context of head injuries uh, and stroke um, particularly so so it's it's rare to um <clears throat> to happen spontaneously or after some kind of trauma but how common is it then in the general population so much much more common than it is in the neurological literature so we described mx uh, in a scientific paper and that was then picked up by an american science journalist carl zimmer who wrote an article in discover magazine and we were then contacted by 20 or so people who said they were like MX but had never been able to visualize. Then we coined the term aphantasia, and since then, many thousand, around 12,000 people have been in touch. And it looks from, um, from what data there is on the spread of vividness in the population as if around 2% of people probably can't visualize, either, either can't visualize at all or visualize very little, very faintly. So some, something like 2%. When I first read about it, I, I read that, that it, you, you had sort of come, come across this uh, from patient MX um, and that uh, he had had this experience of going from being able to visualize to not being able to visualize. Um, one of the things that's come up since then is, could it happen the other way around? I mean, the sense it feels almost self-interested, but <laughs> is, is there any kind of brain injury that I could sustain that, <laughs> that you could imagine giving me visual imagery? Hmm, that's a, an interesting question um I, I don't think i have encountered exactly that i suppose you could say that some of the conditions and changes in the brain that give people hallucinations might be of that kind so for example i mean i'm sure you know about the charles bonnet syndrome which is um syndrome of in which people who lose vision usually later in life but not always um, begin to hallucinate. They have very vivid imagery, which seems to be due to a change in the brain that happens when the brain loses its normal visual input and there's a kind of release of activity, disinhibition of activity, which causes hallucinations. They're not true hallucinations because people with this condition know that what they're seeing isn't real. But nevertheless, they have, they have vivid imagery, um, uh, which they didn't previously. Um, so that's one, one example of a, of a pathology which leads to I would say very vivid imagery. I think there's, there's, there's 
discussion among philosophers about whether hallucinations are the same as visual imagery, but I think my intuitive sense would be that that, 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 that uh, what's happening in somebody with Charles Bonnet is that they're experiencing very vivid imagery. So I think, there, I think it is possible to, to think of pathologies which could um, heighten imagery, but I, I haven't come across um, anyone with aphantasia who, following some uh, injury, has begun to experience vivid imagery. One of the things about aphantasia is that I find it quite often very difficult to describe what it means to me because there's the sort of core experience of it, which um, some people completely get first time uh, and some people literally can't believe of literally just not being able to to call visual imagery to mind. Um, but then there are also a whole bunch of other things that I tend to assume are in some way related to it. Um, But I've also heard other people talk about uh, other people with aphantasia talk about it and they ascribe completely different aspects of of their experience to, to being linked to aphantasia. Um, And I was wondering, are there any sort of actual uh, sort of real correlations that you found between aphantasia and and other um, experiences? So I'm just about to submit a paper about this later today, I hope. So, um, you're absolutely right. I think when when people discover one quirk in their psychological nature, it's very tempting to um, assume that any other quirk is due to the one you just discovered. So, you know, I have aphantasia, therefore I can't learn French, um, which which Mm -hmm. seems unlikely. But there are there are some associations that seem to be fairly consistent. So um, about a third of people with aphantasia say that they have difficulty recognizing faces. So it's not everyone, but it is a substantial minority. And that's an interesting association because it's more a little bit more objective, a little bit more easily measured than visual imagery. And then about a third say that they have difficulty recalling episodes from their autobiographical past or they find that when they're reminiscing with friends and family they they just have a a less vivid recollection than than others do Mm -hmm. Um, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum we find that there's there seems to be an association between hyperphantasia very vivid imagery and synesthesia so the kind of merging of the senses which people experience there are some people who when they look at letters of the alphabet always see them in a particular color for example so there seems to be a, an association there. Um, there is a much less clear-cut but but interesting association between autistic autistic spectrum disorder and I think imagery at both ends of the spectrum, but probably more often aphantasia. Um, that's something we don't have hard data on, but quite a lot of people who've been in touch with us have, have described um, experience of Asperger's syndrome, for example. But I think the associations which we're pretty confident about are with face recognition difficulties, autobiographical memory difficulty at the aphantasic end of the spectrum, and then synesthesia at the the hyperphantasic end of the spectrum. Also, some associations with occupation. So if you are aphantasic, you seem to be a little bit more likely to be working in a mathematical or an IT-related profession. If you have hyperphantasia, you're you're a bit more likely to be working in what what, what might, might broadly be called a creative profession. So th- three three things came to mind um, as you were as you were describing associations. There, one was um, as as regards not being able to recognise faces. I have a persistent fear that I won't be able to recognise faces, which is not founded on ever having been unable to recognise a face, but just because I can't bring a face to mind yep. while I'm waiting to for someone. Yes, so so that's exactly right. Many people with aphantasia describe that, and I, I completely agree with you that that is distinct from 
true difficulty in recognizing faces. But yeah, so occasionally parents say that they, you know, when their child first goes to school, they're really terrified that they won't be able to pick them out at the school gate. Yeah. And of course, they, they do so without any difficulty. Um, the, the second thing was that um, I, I do um, have that, that difficulty with autobiographical memory sometimes. Um, and the third thing um, is that you, I think you alluded to um, uh, when you were talking about the difficulty recognizing faces, the difficulty of measuring uh, visual imagery so I, one of, one of the conversations that I've had, cause I've had many conversations about, um, aphantasia with people. And one of the things that comes up with, with some people is, um, that, uh, it, I'm, I'm not experiencing, experiencing anything different to them. I'm just describing it differently. Um, and I was wondering, so I, I had the opportunity while I was at, uh, the, the, your exhibition at the tramway, um, to fill in a, a, a visual, visual vividity index questionnaire. Yeah, the VVIQ, Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire. Um, so I filled one of those in. Um, and in fact, my mum visited the, the following day and filled one in herself. Um, and I was quite interested to find that I had put mostly ones and she had put mostly fives. Mm. Um, but is, is that, is that as good as it gets? Do you have further, um, sort of measures of, of this? So, so that, I think that is the point of departure. You have to, you have to find out what people, how people describe their own experience, what they report. Um, and I, I completely agree that there is a kind of skeptical concern that people may not be very accurate um, reporters. They, they may, in, introspection is open to question. I happen to think actually it's very valuable, but, but still it's open to question. Mm-hmm. So you do need, you need um, ways of um, triangulating, if you like, this phenomenon with measurable phenomena. So, so that's, sorry, that's a rather, that's a rather obscure sentence. What I mean is that you you want to look for um, associated features which you can measure, um, and there are a c- couple of, of groups of features that you might be able to measure. Measure one is um, behavioural. So, for example, if somebody has trouble with recognising faces or trouble with um, producing autobiographical memories, then you can measure those things using psychological tests. The other approach is to look in the brain and see whether you can detect any differences in brain activity between people who claim to have vivid imagery and people who claim to have no imagery. Um, and I'm fairly confident that we will find objective correlates um, by, by, by following up both those avenues, and that's something we're in the process of doing at the moment. Many people have asked me if I if I dream with images or not, um, and I've found it really difficult to answer the question. And I think the conclusion that I've come to is I think I might dream with images, but because I can't remember the images, I, it doesn't necessarily feel like I've been dreaming with images. If you see what I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah is is a sort of difficult and roundabout conversation to have with people. It's. I have to say, I'm I'm very much enjoying having a conversation um, about aphantasia with someone who knows more about it than I do, because um, uh, yeah, quite often it devolves into me describing specific individual experiences of my own and um, and hoping that I'm yeah. not misleading people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other the other um, interesting variation that we haven't touched on yet has to do with whether it affects just vision or whether it affects all the senses. Mm. So I don't know. Do you? Can you hear music in your mind's ear? I I think so. Yeah, I think I I think I yeah. have no difficulty with that beyond um, anyone else. Okay, because again, there seems to be a split. There seem to be, there are some people who say they really 
you know, don't know what imagery would be like in any sense modality. There are other people who say they you know, they can hear a, a pop song or a symphony in their mind's ear, but they, but they, they still, but they can't visualize. So, in, in some cases, it crosses modalities, and in some cases, it just affects vision. It's. It seems that there is, um, as with everything, a huge variety of experiences um, in in people with aphantasia. Yeah. Um, Can I ask a completely different question with, with regards to <clears throat> um, getting people interested in your research or even funding your research and yeah. um, them questioning the usefulness? So I find it very interesting and i guess i'm biased towards thinking that there should be science for the sake of science and if it's useful yeah. or not you know that's not exactly the point um some yeah. of it might be useful in the long run and maybe not you know um <clears throat> so if your patient what mx mx if uh, if he didn't even describe it as particularly devastating if he was mm -hmm. fine with it so this is someone who's had the capacity to visualize um, and then loses it and he's still fine with it, uh, mm -hmm. then how much less devastating would you say is it for people who've always had aphantasia? And then how much more difficult must it be to say, actually, dear funding body, please give me a lot of money to research this? Yep. No, it's a good question. So, um, so with regard to the kind of emotional impact, I think people vary quite a bit. Um, one, so some some people do f feel that it has had an, an important impact on their lives. Um, and actually, just as a kind of footnote to that, one of the real surprises of from this research has been that's been a huge amount of gratitude. Lots and lots of people have got in touch and said, you know, thank you for coining this term. It's really helpful for me to to be able to describe this this slight quirk in my psychological nature, which has always been a puzzle for me and very difficult to articulate, very difficult to describe to others. So um, people have been, have been glad that, that there's a term and, also, and glad that a, that a research spotlight has, is, is, has been trained on this. Um, I, that must be a nice think, result. Yeah, no, that's very, that's very nice. That's been very gratifying. And the, the interest has been gratifying. I, I think there's wide interest I think I suspect because we we all live so much of our lives in our heads. Uh, that's a very I think that's a very human um, characteristic that we 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 spend a lot of our time thinking in one way or another. And it's very fascinating to discover that there's a, a part of the population who whose whose daydreams whose whose inner lives are very different to your own. So uh, as as I understand it, um, you you research two separate strands. Um, one is um, a very interesting field that we didn't talk very much about sadly um which is um uh, amnesia related to epilepsy so um people having epileptic episodes and uh, and that leading to um short-term amnesia where they they uh just lose the ability to remember things briefly um but from the sounds of it quite regularly which i can imagine is, is distressing um and and then what we talked about for the bulk of our time which was um disorders of visual imagery so um, aphantasia and hyperphantasia um which are these conditions where you either have uh have no uh, sort of mind's eye or have a, a very very active mind's eye um and and you're looking into how they're related to um various other conditions um and psychological quirks um and uh and i think it's it's nicely summed up by that the last bit of conversation that we had there about um about the, the difficulty that you might have in, in getting it funded but the the sort of 
the usefulness of it as research, which isn't necessarily in um, being able to uh, produce new therapeutic uh, avenues for anything, but but in understanding ourselves better and, and each other better, which seems like a fantastic goal for research to have to me. Um, is, is that is that a reasonable summary of what you do? Yeah, yeah, that's very that's a very fair summary. Yeah. Well, that was um, that was a fascinating conversation for me, at least. Um, I, it's, this is the first time that we've talked to someone who, uh, who researches something I have. Although, <laughs> as as I pointed out, uh, that's that's not entirely true, is it? Because I have macrophages. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, being being personally affected by something that we're talking about um, was was interesting for me. What did you think? I think that Adam has. Uh, just a very good way of describing things very precisely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he's probably the right man for the job. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think one of the problems with Aphantasia, certainly for, for people like me who have had a million conversations about it, is that describing it, you know, it's such a difficult yeah. thing to describe. But even like a sentence, like, um, what is a, a variation in experience of not life, but a variation in experience of surroundings or something like that. Mm. So it, variation finds this nice middle ground between, well, it's not normal, but it's also not a disorder. Yeah. Or no, it might, well, maybe it is a disorder, but it doesn't have this quite a strong negative connotation yeah. as it's not disorder. something we necessarily need to do something about. Yeah. It's, it's not in the ordinary, but it's not pathological i think yes yeah. is what doctors well say. at the same time as you said you know if you go to school and you're told to do something that you can't do and you can't describe why so it just because it doesn't have to be treated like that recognizing it can have a profound impact yeah absolutely yeah, yeah if you want to point other people towards the podcast uh, not exactly rocket science.fm if you bump into us you know talk to us we like we like talking that's why that's why we make the podcast <laughs>